0: At one time, okay? No, Susan did not hit me, all right? So I have this big, big knot on my head. No, I did not. Charles, if I need anything from you, I'll ask you over there, brother, okay? All right. Just, all right. So, no, she didn't hit me. I didn't lose a fight. You'll be glad to know that I stood strong, all right? I did not let the corner of that kitchen cabinet get the best of me. I did not it tried but I prevailed I did it I did it without cussing all right I did it without hitting or making a fool of myself um I was dazed it knocked me back but I simply stepped away from the job for a minute okay I just took a deep breath caught my breath I was a little dizzy (laughs) I gathered myself and I refocused on the task at hand and then I just got her done okay That's that's the way you did it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that's what we're going to do today in Revelation. All right. If you're not a little dazed by what we've seen in the last few chapters, you have not read it or heard it. If what you see unfolding in the wrath of God being poured out on those who are not sealed by the blood of Christ, if that doesn't cause us to step back and be a little bit dazed then you've not seen it. The intensity of the judgment that's unfolding before us is just overwhelming, all right? The seals and the trumpets bringing forth this judgment of God on the natural world, on the vegetation, on the fresh water, on the oceans, on the sun and the moon and the stars being darkened. And if that's not enough, then this demonic horde is unleashed from the abyss tormenting humanity like scorpions like locusts and those people are praying to die to get away from the torment and they cannot find death god will not allow them to die and then this sixth trumpet is blown and this demonic army is released the four angels unleash them and they kill a third of mankind a third of mankind is killed it's it 's incredible and and those who survive are still unwilling to repent, still unwilling to turn from their idolatry and their immorality that's that 's what we see here and and so the question that 's asked earlier in revelation, who can stand who can who can who can stand under this? Well, the only people who can are those who are sealed, those who have washed their robes in the blood of the lamb. And what we see today is that those who are sealed are also sent. They're sent with a purpose and a message. And so it's like the Holy Spirit knows we just kind of need a break. All right. We need to. It's called an interlude in chapters 10 and 11. We had one earlier and we need that today. And it's but it's more than just a break. Okay, it's it's to refocus us. And we'll see that this week and next week in chapter 11. And it and it's a reminder i think to them who heard it from john and us who hear it from john of what what role we play in this unfolding drama of god's plans and purposes where do we fit into this what is he what is he calling us to do and so john's encounter with this mighty angel and his recommissioning that comes in the form of this little scroll so so let's turn to Revelation 10 and, and read it together. And, and, and what we see here is this, this amazing picture of God's glory in, in this angel that he sends. And we see this, this authority of God that's demonstrated in the position that the angel takes. And, and just like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, we see this command to take this little scroll. And I don't know if it's a little scroll because it's little or just little because it looks little in the hands of this mighty angel. I'm, I'm not sure. But this scroll is just this picture of what it means for us to receive God's Word, take it in, assimilate it, and then proclaim it. We we see that in this. So let's look at, at chapter 10 of Revelation, all right? Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. And he had a little scroll open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. And so I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Lord, let's let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this word. It is your word. Lord, thank you for revealing it and giving it to us through um, through all those who have come before. Lord, led by your spirit to write down these words. Lord, thank you that in days past you have spoken to us by your prophets. But now you're speaking to us, Lord, through your son, who is the living word. So we pray that Jesus is exalted. We see his glory today. We see his word today. We hear that word. And we see the mission that he has given us, even as you commissioned John here. and Father, I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. So, this mighty angel that is at the center of this this little portion of the drama that we see unfolding. Let's let's look at it. All right. So then he sees this mighty angel coming down from heaven and artists, you know, have typically throughout history kind of portrayed angels in some of the strangest ways. Right. I mean, uh, you've seen that sometimes they're beautiful human like creatures. Sometimes they have wings. Sometimes they glow. Sometimes they have robes. Sometimes they have gym fit. Perfect bodies. Sometimes they're cute, chubby little babies with little fluffy wings on their backs. Um, we have all these different portrayals of angels, and this is just not an accurate way to portray them. And and this this is an opportunity for us to think about angels in one regard. Yeah, Ben kind of left us hanging on a cliff, and I love what the writer of Hebrews tells us about who angels are and who they are not, and who they are not equal to, and who they worship. All right? That's the picture that we see in Hebrews. And, and, and so they're created beings. We don't know exactly when they were made, but they are created beings. And they don't have physical bodies like us, although at times we see them in physical ways in the scriptures. And they do come and they minister and they serve on behalf of God, on behalf of God's people. There are good angels who worship God and serve Him. There are those angels who are fallen like their King Satan, and they, and they serve Him. Two of them that we know have names, Michael and Gabriel. All right. We'll see. We'll see them later on in Revelation two. There are, there are these pictures of angels that we see, but what we see in Revelation that's unlike any other book in the Bible, angels, depending on whose count you go by are, are mentioned 188 times in the new Testament. All right. Almost half of those are in the book of Revelation. It's amazing. And they play a prominent role throughout the book. Now I'm just reading back through Revelation this week and just seeing chapter after chapter after chapter where angels fit into that. In chapter five, there's innumerable angels worshiping around the throne. In chapter seven, we saw that there's those four angels who are restraining judgment and kind of holding it back upon the earth. In chapter eight was where we first saw the seven angels standing before the Lord with seven trumpets, and one of those we saw took embers from that altar and threw them down. The judgment of God coming down in response. To the prayers of God's people. Later on we'll see in Revelation 12. That Michael. That archangel will lead an army of angels against Satan and his angels. Here's what it says. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon and the dragon and his angels waged war and they were not strong enough and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our comrades has been thrown down who accuses them before God day and night. Chapter 12, they just, the angels show their strength. In chapter 14, they're just as busy as they can be. All right. If you look ahead to chapter 14, there's an angel who travels around the world and preaches the gospel. Then there's another angel who announces the fall of Babylon, the fall of the world powers around us. Then there's another angel who has this final word of warning that says, If anyone worships the beast in the image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of His anger. And He'll be tormented with fire and sulfur. And then it says, in the presence of holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So angels will witness the outpouring of God's wrath and worship Him for it. There'll be witnesses to that. Later on in that chapter, it says that God will send His angels as harvesters. One of them will take a giant sickle and harvest the earth, which is exactly what Jesus said they would do in Matthew chapter 13. So it will be at the end of the age, Jesus said. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place, they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there's angels from chapter 4 to chapter 22 of Revelation in every single book. Every single chapter over and over and over. them we see them in chapter seven. There'll be seven angels with seven bowls of wrath in chapter 16. There'll be seven angels with those seven, excuse me, seven plagues in chapter 15. In chapter 16, there'll be seven bowls in chapter 20. This angel will bind Satan and put him into the pit for a thousand years. Chapter 21, the angel will show us the radiant bride of Christ coming down. And in chapter 22, the angel will show us the river of life, man they take this role they're just so prominent in there but but there's one in particular here that comes to John and he is called another mighty angel and here's the point i believe that we need to see here this glorious creature reflects reflects the glory of the one who sent him all right angels are never the focus they're never the point they're always pointing to someone else I saw this mighty angel coming down from heaven, it says, wrapped in a cloud, rainbow over his head, face like the sun, pillars, legs like pillars of fire. So this mighty angel comes down from the presence of God. I don't know when or how it took place, but somehow it seems that John has transitioned. He was in heaven. He was seeing this vision there as the door of heaven was open. Now he's back on earth, it seems, because this mighty angel comes down to him from heaven. And this angel, it says, is wrapped in a cloud, reflecting the glory and the majesty of God. Back in Exodus, it was always the cloud of God that demonstrated his presence. The glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud, it says in Exodus 16.10. The psalmist says in Psalm 104 that he makes the clouds his chariot. By the way, it says in the next verse that he makes his messengers wind, his ministers a flaming fire. Talking about the angels. So this cloud represents this, this majesty and glory of God. He has a rainbow over his head. This is great. This picture of God's faithful covenant promise in the midst of judgment there in the day of Noah. And here's this reminder, I think, of God's covenant promise, his mercy in the midst of judgment in this angel. And this mighty angel has a face like the sun. Well, I guess so. He's been in the presence of God. What would you expect? Huh? And he has legs like pillars of fire. Some commentators say it represents stability. Some say flaming holiness. I think back again in Exodus chapter 13. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night led the people of God. Led the Israelites through the wilderness. It's just again this, this presence of God. This power of God. And, and there's no other experience like it in the Bible except for Daniel. Over in Daniel chapter 10. Listen to this. It says in chapter four of Daniel 10, on the twenty-fourth day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold a man clothed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Ophaz around his waist, and his body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words was like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision. But a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. And then I heard the sound of his words, and I heard the, And when I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face on the ground. Later on, he says, my breath was taken from me. Listen, these are not cuddly little creatures that we think are cute. They reflect the glory and the majesty and the power of the one who sent them. And as we see this unfolding, there's a purpose every time. In Daniel 10, 14, the angel said, I've come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future. For the vision concerns a time yet to come. That's the same thing the angel's telling John in chapter 10. Revelation. I've come for a purpose to tell you what is going to happen. And so John comes and receives this word from the angel. What, what Daniel heard, I'm, I'm telling you what's inscribed in the book. And what John hears is, uh, here's what's inscribed in the scroll. So that's the purpose of these angels. But then a little something strange happens. Notice what it says in verse 2. He had a little scroll in his hand and he said his right foot on the sea, his left foot on the land. I'll talk about that again in just a second. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, it was, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders had said and do not write it down. So there's been sevens all over the place, right? We saw that. We understand that it's, it's a number of fulfillment, a number of completions. There's been seven seals. That have afflicted the earth. There's been seven trumpets that, that, well, a seventh is about to be blown. There's been seven bowls that will be poured out. And now there's seven thunders. And in the context, it seems that these thunders are also a means of God's judgment. Proclaiming God's judgment. The thunder rolls. But what's interesting about it is that John hears this thunder and in it he hears words. He hears something that's understandable. It's understandable because he wants to write it down, right? He's not going to write down something he doesn't understand. These thunders roll, they're ready to act, and then something amazing happens. And and, and commentators say it's the only time in Revelation that you see it. The book that is an unveiling all of a sudden tells us, lock it up. Don't reveal it. Seal it up so that no one sees it. It's almost like what Paul was told to do with his vision in 2 Corinthians 12. But John is told, seal up what the seven thunders had said and do not write it down. So he was impressed. He understood it. He wanted to write it and he's told not to. What does that mean? I'm not, again, I don't know. I'm not sure. Uh, but here's, here's, here's a couple of really good things points that, that other commentators have pointed out that I think helps us understand this. Well, first off, it says in Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. We understand that. We as humans want to know. But Moses tells us the secret things belong to God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So there are things that God chooses to reveal and there are things that he chooses to keep to himself. I like what Danny Aiken says about this particular passage. He says, the seven thunders, no doubt, would be another horrible series of judgments unleashed, unleashed on the planet Earth. But God says no. They will not act. God speaks and they are stilled. He said, is God silencing them as an act of grace and mercy? Is it an evidence of God's long suffering and patience? Dr. Aiken says, we must remember as bad as the seals and the trumpets and the bowls are, it could have been worse. So I don't know what those seven thunders might have been. And I'm, I'm, I think we could be thankful that we don't. But here's what another commentator said. John is being told to affirm God's sovereign control over the judgments proclaimed in the thunders and then is prohibited from revealing the contents to his readers. And the major message is one of sovereignty. God is in control, this writer said, and the saints do not need to know the details. We just trust him. We just trust him. And I think that's what those thunders are meant to tell us. But there is an unveiling. There is something revealed to us. Look at what it says. This angel, this mighty angel, and again, I don't know if it's a little because he's big or if it's little just because it's little. He had a little scroll open in his hand. He said his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he called down in a loud voice like a lion roaring. And in verse five, it says, and the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it and earth and what is in it and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as He had announced to His servants, the prophets. This mighty messenger—and that almost seems contradictory, doesn't it? I was thinking about that this morning as I was reading back through. Mighty Aaron boy, huh? But that's that's what this angel is—he's a messenger. He's an errand boy sent by God, but he's majestic in it. All right. And this mighty angel has one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. And clearly, I believe that depicts the dominion of God. God's dominion over everything. I love what James Hamilton says about this. Be confident that the Lord is God of all and will accomplish his purpose. And this angel standing on the sea and the dry land reminds us that all things are under Jesus's feet. Been read in Hebrews one. I mean, for crying out loud, church, he holds this world together by his powerful word. So he stands over it, does he not? Hamilton says, no terrorists, no rogue governments, no dictators, no usurpers of democracy, no kings, no tax collectors, no corrupt government officials, no hypocritical senators are going to stand in the way of God accomplishing his purpose. If Russia puts a military base on Cuba, if terrorists strike the USA again... If our democracy comes to an end in this country, God's purposes will still come to pass because God is the Lord of history and his will is going to be done. Amen. It will be done. And this angel standing on of the earth and the sea reminds us of that. And this angel has a voice like the voice of the prophets. The Old Testament prophet Amos said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the pastures of the shepherds mourn in the top of Carmel withers. So the mountains wither at the voice of the Lord like a lion. Later on in chapter three, he says, the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secrets to the servants, the prophets. And then here's this contrast. God doesn't whisper that. It says in verse eight, the lion has roared who will not fear. The Lord God has spoken who can but prophesy. Well, the answer is John is one who cannot do anything but prophesy because this angel speaks with the roaring voice of God. And this mighty angel with his feet on the earth and on the heavens and his head up in the heavens, it seems, then raises his arm and swears an oath. And we see that in Scripture from time to time. Yeah, Jesus tells us not to, not to do this. He tells us not to do it, though, in a way that is contrary to what the Scriptures depict for us. We, we just need to be our yes, yes, and our no, no, Jesus tells us. But even God swears an oath by Himself. But here this angel swears an oath. And it's in the name of the living God who lives forever and ever, he says in verse 6. And then three times he acknowledged the eternality of God. In chapter 5, God is worshipped as the eternal creator. Here in chapter 10, we're reminded that he is the eternal creator. And this angel swears by him. And what this oath is, I don't believe, is anything more than simply saying you can trust it. You can trust it. Trust God in his word. He's the God who created heaven and earth and what's in it. Three times it tells us that he's the sovereign creator of all that there is. You can count on him. You can count on him and his word. And so this mighty messenger then makes this declaration. There's not going to be, he says, any more delay. Verse seven, when the trumpet that's about to be sounded by the seventh angel sounds, then he says the mystery of God will be fulfilled just as it was announced to his servants, the prophets. So it's about to happen. Everything up to Revelation to this point in time, all of a sudden, we're on the edge, we're on the cliff, has been said. And when this next trumpet sounds, it's going to come, all right? First, the messenger says there will be no delay. Well, that's the answer that the martyrs had in chapter 6, right? How long, O oh Lord? Well, it's about to happen. God will not stop. And the the judgments will not cease until the end. And in in the next chapter, we're going to see the Antichrist come up out of the abyss. We're going to see all this begin to unfold as he emerges as a world power. God versus evil. The lamb versus the dragon. They're headed for this conflict. It's going to happen. All right. The delay is over. But second, he says, this mystery is about to be revealed. All right. Now in the New Testament a mystery is, is not a who done it, it's who's going to do it. It's a mystery that has been hidden, un, unrevealed, unveiled, but is about to be unveiled. A mystery is what's about to be revealed, a truth that before we didn't know, now we're about to know it. And I think that's exactly what Paul was talking about in Ephesians chapter one, when he says that in Christ, God is making to uh, unknown to us the mystery of his will. We saw that as we were looking at that according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, he said, as the fullness of his plan in the fullness of his time. He says to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That's what revelation is. It's the uniting of all things under the headship of Christ we just sang about this mystery. Come behold the wondrous mystery of Jesus, of Christ, of Him coming, of Him crucified, of Him buried, of Him raised. The prophets were looking forward to this mystery being unveiled. And we're going to see it unfold in all of its fullness. God's plan and purpose in creation and redemption is all centered on the Lamb who was slain but is now raised. His kingdom will come, right? Genesis 3, the serpent's head will be crushed. And that's what we're about to see in the book of Revelation. These prophecies, these promises. Isaiah forty six eleven. I have spoken, God says, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. So what does that have to do with us? What does that have to do with John? Well, there's this recommission, okay? There's the bitter sweet word of God that is assimilated and proclaimed. Look at verse 8. The voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel, standing on the sea and on the land. This is this vision. You know, you have to be careful sometimes in Revelation trying to envision what some of this is going to look like. But there's this mighty Creature, This angel, this this vision, his head's up in the heavens and his feet are on the land and on the sea. And he's got this little tiny scroll in his hand. And John's told to go up to him. Go to him. So he says, I went to the angel and I told him to give me the little scroll. I wonder how much authority there was in that voice. Would you give me the scroll, please, sir? (laughs) I don't know. Maybe John was bold in the Lord. Give me that scroll. So says the Lord. I don't know, but he approaches this mighty angel and says, give me the little scroll. And the angel said to me, I think that's the angel speaking there. It's God before, but now it's the angel. And the angel says, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. So John did what he was told. I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I'd eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And then in verse 11, and I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. God's word comes with the authority that we see in this this angel, this mighty angel. The authority of this oath sworn by the God who created all that is. And and these promises and these prophecies are all about to be filled. But listen, that means nothing to you and me or the people around us if we don't take it and do something with it. All those Bibles stacked up in our homes with dust on them. They mean nothing. So here he's told to go and take this word. Go and take. It's an imperative command. And I I think John needed to be commanded to go up to that angel. And he did. He did. And he takes this scroll, which is open, it's clearly a message for us there. You know, you and, you and me, we've been given this, this scroll, this open book. It's, it's, it's not that hard. There's still people all over our globe that would die and are dying for a little piece of this. And many of us have more of them than we can count. So we're told to go to that word and take it and open it. Well, how do we? How do we take it in? Well, the angel says, take it and eat it. See, John here is commanded to do the same thing that Jeremiah was told to do and that Ezekiel is told to do. And there's so many beautiful parallels between Ezekiel and John here in this chapter. In Ezekiel chapter 2, starting in verse 9, listen, it says, And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me and it had writing on the front and on the back and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And in chapter three, verse one, it says, and he said to me, son of man, eat whatever you find here, eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat and he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. And then I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. And he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. Ezekiel is given this vision. He's given this scroll. He's told to take it. He is told to go exclusively to the people of Israel with the words that God gives him. John is presented this scroll. He's told to go and take it and eat it. It'd be sweet as honey. John is given the commission to go and take it. To all the peoples and the languages and the nations and the kings. There's so many similarities here. So this book is sweet like honey. Psalm 119 says, how sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey in my mouth. Psalm 19 says, more to be desired are they than gold, than much fine gold and sweeter than honey. The drippings of the honeycomb. The honey flows about over. If you're a beekeeper, you know that. And Susan and I have already taken off some frames. And I just can't resist. I just take my finger and just squish it down in there. And There's nothing like it. I'm telling you, there's just nothing like it. But there is, this angel says. There is, God says to Ezekiel and to John. And it's here in this word. It's, it's sweet like honey. But it's also bitter. It says, John, it's going gonna, it's gonna to make you want to throw up. It's sweet because it reveals the gospel. It reveals God's grace and His goodness. It's sweet because it reveals His love and His mercy. It's sweet because it reveals His plans and His purposes. It's sweet because in John 3.16 it says, For God so loved the world. But it's bitter because in John 17 it says, Whoever does not receive the Son is condemned already. And that's words of judgment. Judgment. That's words of wrath. That's words of difficulty. It's words to unbelievers that outside of Christ you are doomed. And honestly, it's words to believers that inside of Christ even there's still persecution and suffering. So it's bitter. And John says, John gets this commission, or actually it's a recommission, right? Because back in chapter 1 and verse 11, he was told to take all these things and write them down and send them to the churches. Well, now he's told to take all these things and he's called to call it to go. And, it, and, and you must, it says, you must prophesy. It's, a, it's an imperative. The Apostle Paul said in Romans, I am under obligation. I'm obligated, he said, to preach the gospel. So are you and I. We're obligated. John was obligated. You must you have a, you have a spiritual obligation, John. You must prophesy and proclaim this. Proclaim it. To who? Well, notice what it says. This mandate says it's for peoples, nations, languages. We've seen that over and over and over, and we'll continue to see it. But then there's this inclusion of kings. And, and that's unique here. It's only here that you find that in Revelation. But it's important. And I think it simply could be said this way. The word of God will overrule and outlast every human dominion and government. Do you hear that? Because that's what we must focus on. The word of God will overrule and outlast every human dominion. God put it plainly in Isaiah chapter 40. Starting in verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he, it is God who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. (laughs) It is he who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. It is he who brings princes to nothing and makes rulers of the earth as emptiness Scarcely they are planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like a stubble. The Kremlin, the White House, the governor's mansion, the city hall will lay in ruins when this earth is destroyed by fire. But there will be a new heavens and a new earth with King Jesus on the throne. That must be our focus. And that alone is our mandate. And that alone is our command. Oh, God, bring it about. Bring it about, we pray. So what do we take away from this? All right. First application I want to give you is not in your notes, but I was just this morning I was thinking about it. It come from Romans. I was reading through Romans again in Romans ten eight. And today, if you have never trusted in Jesus, this word is near to you right now. Nearer than perhaps it ever will be again. The Apostle Paul says such in Romans ten eight. The word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. And that's the word of faith that we proclaim to you. Because if you confess with your mouth, he says that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's that simple. The Mormons don't get it. But many of us don't either. It's that simple. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confess that with your mouth. He says for with the mouth one believes and is justified and with them, and excuse me with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. If you've never this dominion listen our our temptation as humans is to worship these angels these creatures that clearly are greater than us. Don't. Later on, John will be told that. One of these angels comes to him and he falls down before it like Daniel did. And the angel says, no, don't do that. Worship God. Well, the first step in worshiping God is to trust in the one whose glory is seen in this mighty creature. Because this glory is nothing compared to the glory of the Son of God who came and gave his life for you and died on the cross for you and was raised from the tomb three days later for you. Trust in him. Secondly, Angels are worthy of our awe, but not our worship. Christ alone is worthy of that, all right? Ben read that to you in Hebrews one. But there's another thing about angels that we can learn from revelation. We can learn it from a lot of examples. And and we would do well to follow their example in their obedience. Okay? We'd do well to follow their example of obedience. As mighty as they are, they're messengers. Wayne Grudem puts it this way. Angels show us what perfect obedience looks like. <laughs> Jesus teaches us to pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in heaven, God's will is done by angels. Immediately, joyfully, and without question, they are delighted to be God's humble servants. Faithfully performing their assigned task, great or small. Grudem says our desire in prayer should be that we will do the same thing. Yes. They're worthy of our all, and we should follow their example, but we must not worship them. Another application it comes from the seven thunders. God has not revealed all there is for us maybe to know. But he's given us enough, right? Listen, our problem is not the part of God's word we don't understand. Our problem is the part we do and don't do anything about it. That's, that's the problem that we have. And he's given us enough that we know our mission and he's given us enough that we go our mes- that we know our message. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus said, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the father and son and the Holy Spirit. That is our mission. That is our mission, church. That's our mission as individuals, as families, as, as a church. It's our mission as, as Southern Baptists. We'll be reminded of that this next week in Nashville, one way or the other. That's our mission. And we let so many things distract us from that. Our politics and our economy and all these things that just just draw us away from this mission of going and making disciples. And the message is really simple too: teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And so that's what we've been called to do. But the last application is also really pretty simple. This message can only be communicated by us if it is in us. If it's assimilated into us, into our being, into into who we are. I mean, as followers of Christ, have we not been told man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God? Jesus told us that the word is our bread. Peter tells us that the word is our milk. Like newborn infants, we are to long for the pure spiritual milk of the word. But the writer of Hebrews tells us that we can't stay on the bottle, right? The writer of Hebrews tells us that the word is also our meat, our solid food. By now, he says, some of you ought to be teachers, but you still need someone to teach you the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. He says everyone who lives on milk is unskilled with the word of righteousness since he is a child. But the solid food of the word is what's implied here. The solid food is for the mature. Who by it, he says, have their powers of discernment trained for constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Are you malnourished today? Are we spiritually malnourished? Or or, are our stomachs never churning with the bitterness of sin and the lostness of the world around us, they're not if we haven't taken the sweetness of God's Word into us. Maybe we're so callous and just comfortable in the Word because we're malnourished. Take it and eat it. I close today with a passage that it seems I'm closing with every week, but just get used to it, okay? 2 Peter chapter 3 helps us more than any other to to put this into perspective for us. It's about to happen. There's going to be no more delays. But until those until that time when that seventh trumpet is sounded, Peter tells us in chapter 3 that that ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. That's what some people say. Where's the promise of his coming? Unbelievers don't care about what we're preaching here in Revelation. It means nothing to them. Unfortunately, many believers don't either. We're so caught up in this world today. But the significance of that, Peter says, they deliberately overlooked the fact in verse five that heaven existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And by that means the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Looking back to the day as a Noah. Verse seven says by that same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. So what we might say. Well, Peter says, don't overlook this fact, beloved, that every day until that happens, it's a gift of grace. Every day until that happens, it's an opportunity. The, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day, and the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowest, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So down in verse 11, he says, since these things are all going to happen, what should we do? Who should we be? And he says, we should live our lives of holiness and godliness waiting for. Just be patient. But then hastening. How do we do that? How do we hasten this day? I think Jesus tells us that in Matthew when he says that it's not until the word is proclaimed to all these nations that are unreached that the end will come. We need to work toward reaching the nations so that the end comes about waiting for and hastening for the coming day of the Lord. He says for this promise of a new heavens and a new earth. God help us to do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your word in Revelation 10, for the timeless testimony of this scroll, this book that we have before us, Lord, that is living and breathing and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, first let it cut into the hearts of your people. Let it go into our being, Lord, sweet to taste with an understanding, Lord, of the bitterness of it. God, our lives are to be lived in such a way you tell us that, we're the aroma of life to those who are, who are living in Christ. And we're the aroma of death to those who are perishing. But, Lord, let them be drawn to Jesus through our lives and our words and our testimony. And let that word, Lord, be yours. So, Father, we ask that today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.